I'm John Fort, anchor and technology reporter for CNBC Business News. You're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast. Anyhow, the elephant came up and then took the guide and just curled the guide about, I would say, almost 15 yards, just tossed it. Wow. And then ran up and stopped in front of me. And so meanwhile, I'm not running. You're not going to outrun it into one of these things anyway. They run at 30 miles an hour. And stopped 18 inches from my face. This is five tons of elephant. And to this minute, I can see it. I can smell it. I can see the tusk, the hair follicle, the, the hoof, uh, the eyeball. And uh, so I'm standing my ground. And it was like, you know, we had a little mental exchange. with like, okay, what are we going to do now? And then <laughs> how, I mean, I know it probably seems like five minutes, but how long was that pause, you think? Maybe three seconds. To say Tom Siebel has had an interesting life would be putting it mildly. He's a billionaire entrepreneur, a tech visionary, and the survivor of an elephant attack eight years ago that, by the odds, should have killed him. Several doctors told him he would never walk again, much less sail competitively. But he does. So, what do you learn about life when you've stared down death in the form of a five-ton elephant, been crushed by that elephant, and lived to tell the tale? What do you learn when you've invented one of the first killer workplace apps of the PC era and sold it for about $6 billion? After you've made all that, survived all that, why, at 64 years old, are you still inventing? Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. Tell a friend. Tom Siebel sat down with me at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square to share some insight into what's made him tick and what's helped him succeed. But first, a story about an elephant. August 1st, 2009, I was on safari with my wife and daughters in uh, Tanzania uh, in the Serengeti. And actually, we had uh, been on its safari with them for about three days in the last few days of July, mm. uh, where you kind of drive around in a Range Rover and look at uh, all of the animals. And they got bored of that and wanted to take a day off. And one of the uh, amenities that they featured at this uh, facility was, which was kind of a private encampment, um, was a walking safari. So I asked the guide if we could take a walking safari tomorrow. And he said, no problem, Mr. Siebel, meet me for breakfast at 6.30. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Serengeti, but it's no. basically high desert, and it's, it, 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 there's no relief, really no trees, no hills, some scrubs, and some occasional mud hill, holes where the animals congregate. And uh, he explained to me that um, I would be carrying, I was going to carry, I was armed with a Nikon, a uh, single-lens reflex <laughs> camera. And, I thought you were uh, going to say Bushmaster was with And, and he was going to be armed with a uh, double-barrel 470 rifle. Oh, okay. Well, a 470 rifle has a charge about the size of a roll of dimes. And he explained to me that it was very important that if we were charged by an animal that I not run, because if I, run, if I ran, uh, we were going to be hurt. So we walked out at daybreak, and it was uh, not a breath of wind. And we went for about 15 minutes. We came upon a herd of uh, elephant. And there were 15 of them, uh, adults and juveniles, in a stand of trees about 200 meters away, Mm. kind of peeling branches away the way they do. 
And we stood there and watched them in this for about seven minutes. And then all of a sudden, this one matriarch, um, a very large female elephant, got wind, some other wind must have shifted or something, and she saw us and went back on her haunches, and her trunk went up, and her ears went back, and she bellowed, and then all of a sudden focused at us since this elephant starts taking a beeline at us. At, uh, so this is five tons moving at 30 miles an hour. So it'll cover 200 yards pretty quickly. Yeah. And so standing in front of me is the guide with his loaded double barrel 470 rifle. And the elephant comes up, you know, 150 yards, 100 yards. Guide doesn't shoot. 80 yards, 70 yards, 60 yards. Guide doesn't shoot. You know, 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards. About this time, it started to get a bit concerning. Yeah. And the guide doesn't shoot. Well, the guide shot at 10 yards and missed. And an elephant oh. at 10 yards is the size of the wall of this conference room. I don't imagine at 10 yards shooting the elephant would have done much anyway. Well, it would have dropped it in its tracks. I mean, a 470 rifle will drop an elephant in its tracks yeah. at 100 yards. And uh, anyhow, the elephant came up and then took the guide and just curled the guide about, I would say, almost 15 yards, just tossed him. Wow. And then ran up and stopped in front of me. And so meanwhile, I'm not running. You're not going to outrun it in one of these things anyway. They could run at 30 miles an hour. And stopped... 18 inches from my face. This is five tons of elephant. And to this minute, I can see it, I can smell it, I can see the tusk, the hair follicle, the, the hoof, uh, the eyeball. And uh, so I'm standing my ground, and it was like, the, you know, we had a little mental exchange. I was like, okay, what are we going to do now? <laughs> and then the how, I, mean, I know it probably seems like five minutes, but how long was that pause, you think? Maybe three seconds. Three seconds. And it's very surreal because you don't really have a place in your brain to put an elephant, okay? You oh, mean, there's, there's not a, you know, there's no context for that. So you're off in a, it's a very surreal space and things move very, very slowly. And then the elephant proceeds to knock me to the ground and roll me and punch me. And I took a tusk through one leg Oof. and the elephant stepped on my other leg and my foot came off. And meanwhile, I'm just kind of holding my head while I'm being rolled and pushed and, 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 and basically attacked by this raging elephant, which was, um, you know, not my best day. And, uh, the, you know, you can imagine the pain of being, you know, impaled by an elephant's tusk. I or can't. Having your, you know leg stepped on and literally you your my foot, foot came, came, came off. off my leg, yeah. And uh, it was still hanging on but when we were done by, say, one artery, two tendons, and a flap of skin. Um, but you know, the hits were almost unimaginably painful, unimaginably painful. And I uh, remember thinking to myself, you know, dear God, make this stop. And I didn't really care how it stopped. I just couldn't do it anymore. It, it really hurt. Look up. Dust is settled, elephant's gone. And uh, I'm critically injured. I look over and the guide is now about 18 yards away because I've been pushed around a little bit. You know, lying absolutely still, prone, on top of a loaded double barrel 470 rifle. So he knew I was dead and he didn't want the same fate. And he could have gotten off seven rounds in this period of time. Mm. So then they uh, surrounded me, he got on a radio, they surrounded me up by a hurt by a number of trucks so that no more animals got in, and I lay there for uh, three and a half hours in the Serengeti with my one leg flayed open, my other leg, the foot detached, and um, went from there to a pickup truck, pickup truck, 
to a back of a Cessna, Cessna to Nairobi, had surgery in Nairobi. You want to be scared? <laughs> have surgery in Nairobi. And that airlifted. You, that, you drew the long straw and got a good doctor in Nairobi? I survived and uh, did get a blood transfusion and uh, arrived. Did not get a blood did transfusion. Did not get it right. because of a mistake, actually. And um, they then I airlifted to San Jose, California, 20-hour flight. They had 10 hours of morphine. So the last 10 hours, were, I took maybe all the morphine in Kenya and with me. And uh, it was uh, the last 10 hours were pretty long. And the next three years, I had 19 reconstructive surgeries. Um, at one point, I weighed 121 pounds. I was an electric wheelchair, mm. uh, like, kind of like a paraplegic. Yeah. And then three years later, I walked. And uh, now I'm back 100%. Anyway, this is my leg. There's, you know, there's nothing artificial about it. And uh, it just took a lot of surgeries to get it right. And I would go visit physicians, and they would explain that they're going to have to remove my leg. And I'd say, okay. You're fired, <laughs> and then I'd go, you know, and I kept going through physicians until somebody, um, I was, you know, persistent about it, and uh, I'm very fortunate. What did the physician say where you stopped and said, okay, this one I can work with? Well, it was, uh, I had a uh, device on my leg to hold it together. It's called the Lizaroff fixator. It's an external fixator. It's extremely painful. Mm. It has like, you know, three eighty-inch lag, lag bolts. Is that the thing I've seen on yeah. TV in the movies? Yeah. It looks like a cage sort yeah, of with like various. They have wires going through your joints, lag bolts going into your tibia. Yeah. I mean, it really, it hurts every second of every minute up to every 24 hours of a day. And I had six of those installed. And they're made by a company called Smith & Nephew uh, in Memphis, and it's called a Taylor Spatial Frame. It was invented by some crazy guy in Siberia by the name of Elizaroff. And, um, and yeah, I called at one point after a year and a half of a lot of pain, I called the product manager for Smith & Nephew in Memphis. And uh, they put me in touch with Maggie, who was the product manager. And I said, Maggie, I know you don't usually talk to people like me, but I've been a customer of yours for some time. And I would like to, I'd like you to like tell me who has more experience installing these than anybody in the world. And I said, yeah. I don't really care where, you know, Leningrad, Rio, London, New York, it's all good, just tell me where to go. Yeah. And she said, okay, Mr. Siebel, let me look into it and get back to you. I never expected her to call back. And then the next day she calls back and I pick up the phone and it's Maggie from Smith and Matthew in Memphis. And Maggie says, well, Mr. Siebel, I've researched it, and the fact is that the two people with the most experience of anybody in the world in installing these devices are in San Francisco. Huh. And so 22 miles down the road. Yeah. And so I went to this doctor in San Francisco, and he looked at it, and he unfortunately said, we have to redo the whole project because it's all been incorrectly installed. But he did redo the whole project, and today I walk, I jump, I kiteboard, I lift weights, I do you know, uh, I do uh, you know very uh, aggressive, uh, extreme, competitive sailing, and I'm in you know pretty good shape. And to reset, you are an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. You started Siebel Systems, sold it to Oracle for just shy of six billion dollars. But it's been just over ten years now mm -hmm. since that. And now you have C3 IoT started off. Uh, in the energy space, doing cap and trade, so, some other things. Explain what it is that you're doing now and what really drives your vision for the company. 
Okay, so let me put this into context a little bit. I'm a computer scientist from the University of Illinois mm -hmm. at Urbana. I did my graduate work in relational database theory in the early 80s and went together, went to work for a small startup okay, that was just <laughs> entering the relational database space called Oracle Corporation. Right. So I was about, I think, the 20th employee in the United States. Uh, Oracle then had a headquarters of about 12,000 square feet on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park. You've probably seen the building at 2710 Sand Hill Road. So I, w I threw my hat in with uh, Larry Ellison and Bob Miner. They seemed like pretty bright guys. They were, were obviously very bright guys. And I worked with them first in Chicago, then Washington, D.C., and then I went out to California. How did you guys find each other? Uh, they, uh, when I was getting ready to graduate, I got a, uh, the, from the University of Illinois, there was a phone message in my graduate mailing box at Urbana that said, please call Oracle Corporation. Well, I'd never heard of Oracle. Nobody ever had heard of Oracle. Right. And so I called them, and they said, we'd like to you know, we'd like to talk to you. Was that some kind of Chicago connection? I mean, Larry no, there was a, my thesis advisor was a woman by the, by the name of Geneva Belford. Mm. And they had another, uh, they had one of her other graduate students by the name of Soheba Bassi, who later became the CEO of Informatica. Okay. Uh, and he was also, prior to that, he was a very senior executive at Oracle. But the, uh, the basically, they, somehow they got in touch with the, with the university, and Geneva Belford said, we want to hire somebody just like Sohabe. <laughs> and uh, so they recommended me, and I'm not nearly as talented as Sohabe, I can assure you, uh, but this is how we were introduced. So I worked with Oracle, I worked with Larry Allison in the development and commercialization of relational database technology for about 10 years until Oracle was roughly a billion dollar business and then went off and we started Siebel Systems, which was about the application of information technology. We invented the CRM market, basically. Right. So CRM, as you know it today. We started that company in 1993. Uh, by 2000, we And for those who don't know, CRM, customer relationship management, basically keeping in touch with the people who bring revenue in the door. This Thank you. Helping companies to keep in touch with the people who bring revenue in the door, uh, have a better relationship with them than the competitors so they can grow faster. Thank you, John. So this, yes, this was about sales automation, call center systems, internet self-service, product configuration. These, these are the types of technologies that we, we invented that, that market. Mm. And so by 2000, uh, six years later, we had 8,000 employees in 29 countries. We were doing about $2 billion in revenue. We had a market capitalization of $53 billion. And we were on, we went public on NASDAQ, I think, in 1996. Um, and then, in, uh, and then of course, the whole software market kind of collapsed after 9-11, as you recall. Yeah. Uh, but Siebel did quite well. And then it was, um, we merged with Oracle Corporation in 2006. So C3IoT is my third third uh, startup. Why'd you want to sell? Well, it was, yeah, I remember there was a very rancorous uh, relationship between Larry um, and me after we started Siebel. I'm not quite certain why, because I offered him the idea and he didn't want to do it. Okay? <laughs> but, but he had assigned 3,000 people to, and he was very vocal, about the idea of taking us, you know, he was going to crush us, he was going to take us out of the market. Well, 10 years later, he'd have 3,000 people working at less than 1% market share. Um, so I was somewhat su surprised when my assistant said, and I think the summer of 2005, it's Larry Ellison on the phone. 
And uh, I remember taking the call, and I know Larry pretty well, and I took the call, and I said, Larry, I assume you're not calling, looking for a sponsor for your America's Cup <laughs> vote. And without skipping a beat, he said, that's not a bad idea, but we need to put the names in alphabetical order. <laughs> and one thing led to another. And he suggested that putting these companies together was a good idea. And it was, it was a good idea because the market had changed because Siebel Systems went to market on a best-of-breed strategy. Mm -hmm. And we, we took on all comers, Oracle, SAP, IBM, everybody with these integrated suites. But it's clear as we get into 2003, 4, 5, uh, the companies really wanted to buy integrated suites of enterprise applications and software rather than best-of-breed components for each element. And that, and that means you went you went to market on the idea, we do this better than anybody else, but at a certain point, customers just want convenience. Yes. They want, a, they want the extra value meal. They don't necessarily want the best fries in the world. So for some time, the best of breed strategy was the proper strategy, because we had greater than 65% market share in every market in the world, in sales, marketing, customer service, call center, internet service, marketing automation, what have you. Uh, but the market was changing. And so, and, and I could see that, and, and, and I thought, you know, the company needed to combine with a, with, a, with, with a solution provider that could provide the entire suite of products, and it was a very successful business combination. It was, I think it was, um, it was a, a, mostly a stock transaction at a time when Oracle was trading at $10 a share. Uh, I think we sold for five or six billion dollars, and two years later, Oracle stock was trading at thirty dollars. So if you, you know, held on to your stock, it was a pretty good trade. Did you hold on to it? And yes, and it <laughs> was um, it was good for the employees. It was good for the customers. Okay, it was good for the shareholders, and it was it was very good acquisition for Oracle. So one of the things that we're quite proud of, I think that it is it is perceived of as I think one of the if not the best acquisition that Oracle has made. And of all the, Oracle must have bought hundreds of companies now, PeopleSoft, Sun Microsystems, Storage Technology, what have you. Siebel is the only brand that they've retained. All those brands have gone away, but they still sell under the Siebel brand. So we're quite proud of that. And it's, um, um, it's I think it was a great business combination. It was a good idea and Oracle has executed quite well. Where'd you learn to run a business? I learned basically at Oracle, and uh, so I uh, I have a little bit of experience. I have an undergraduate degree in history, history of science. I have an MBA. I have a graduate degree in engineering and computer science. So I have generally familiar with the languages of engineering and the languages of commerce. Uh, but I think I learned to run a business by watching what Oracle did right and by watching what Oracle did that could be improved upon. Where did Oracle learn to run a business? Oracle learned it in real time. <laughs> is that ideal? Learning it in real time? No, I think that is suboptimal. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's, when we get into these bull markets like we are now, and we were in, say, 1999 and 2000, you know, there's a real, um, um, the, you know, a lot of these people, young people out of college, are encouraged to immediately go start companies. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm not really sure that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, I think it might be a good idea to go 
work for another company first and learn about sales, learn about marketing, learn about accounting, learn about compliance, learn about you know human capital practices, and maybe learn a little patience, get a little humility, you know, fail a few times. We tend to focus on the exceptions to that rule, on the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerbergs, Evan Spiegel's now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Did he finish? I don't remember. But are you saying by and large? Yeah, for every Steve Jobs, there are 10,000, okay, who... Steve Williams, you know, right, who, who you never heard of. You know, who, you know, drop out of Harvard, drop out of Stanford, or graduate from Stanford and start their company, and you need 99 out of 100 of them go nowhere. How did you know when it was time for you to leave and start your own thing? I had, uh, you know, I was very interested uh, in first in relation to database technology, and then I was very interested in the application of information technology and communication technology to the problems of sales, marketing, and customer service, which as of 1993, uh, we hadn't gotten there yet. So right. we had automated manufacturing, general office automation work, accounting, but sales, marketing, and customer service remained largely untouched by information technology and communication technology. So I believe that that was unlikely to be true. I believe that if somebody did that successfully, there was the basis for a pretty good company there. It's something I wanted to do. I wanted to do it initially within Oracle, uh, but you know, Oracle did not have an interest in the business at that time, so I went off and did it myself. Similar to a conversation I, I remember having with Ali Harari, who founded SanDisk. Mm-hmm. Same thing, he was at Intel, said, hey, this, this Flash thing is going to be big, we should work on it. Uh, he didn't get the response that he needed to go forward, so he left and started something. Is that discouraging at first, and maybe you question your instincts or your thought process along the idea, or do you sort of immediately know, well, you're wrong, so I gotta go and do this? I was satisfied that it was a good idea. I was satisfied that it was a market there, and it's just not a market that Larry Ellison was interested in pursuing at that time. Anyway, Larry was you know, a very, very bright guy, and his successes speak for themselves. Uh, but it's, he, he didn't have an interest. He didn't see the market. I did. And, um, and you know, I just decided to go for it. Compare that to C3. What did you see when you decided to start this company? C3 was a... Um, so <clears throat> let's step back, if I might, to civil mm-hmm. systems and CRM. If we look, you know, when we did that... 93, 94, 95, when we started that company, there was a big step function of technology that you'll recall John had just become available in Silicon Valley. We had small form factor, Nevada computing, broadband with communications, very importantly with Windows 95, graphical user interface technology, mm-hmm. high-speed relational database systems. We basically decided to take that step function of technology and point it at the value chain of sales, marketing, customer service. Now, we had a few couple of things we had to invent along the way, but in general, that's what we did. Now, let's you know, fast forward 25 years and look at uh, you know, the step function of technology that's available now with the kind of game-changing technologies, elastic cloud computing, big data, okay, you know, an entirely new generation of human-computer interfaces, whether it be through the smartphone or through natural language um, uh, processing. And for people who aren't up on all of this stuff, you can basically uh, create little sensors that are able to, to take in information and put them all over the place on the well, one I haven't hand. gotten to that one yet. So, and that, then on the, <laughs> so that, that, that comes next. That, on the other, other hand, the data, the massive amounts of data that they bring in, yeah. you can process in the cloud using these 
very flexible computers that can crunch numbers faster than anything we've had before. Now you can actually do something with all that information. So there are five vectors. Okay. Elastic cloud computing, big data, uh, these new human-computer interfaces, mm -hmm. what, okay, what's going on with um, the, what we call the Internet of Things, which is the censoring of value chains, right. which is a, a huge vector this decade, I think in the next three decades, mm. okay? And then AI, okay? So AI is now very real with machine learning and deep learning. Artificial so, intelligence. Yes, and so you, we can solve classes of problems that were heretofore uh, unsolvable. And so that was the general idea to build a platform, a platform as a service. So think about this as an application development environment and an operating environment that allows organizations in energy, in the utility space, discrete manufacturing, healthcare, financial services, whatever it may be, to build big data, predictive analytics, and IoT applications. And all these are all brand new fields. And if we look at the size of the addressable market, this is predicted to be, say, a quarter of a trillion dollar market opportunity, <laughs> just the software stack. And you say predictive analytics, basically taking information about what's going on and what's gone on and being able to make a pretty smart guess about what's going to happen. Um, predictive analytics is, is, a, is something that a result of AI, of machine, artificial intelligence, machine learning and deep learning, okay, where we can look at the behavior of systems in the past and based upon their behavior in the pessimist fashion, whether we're looking at device failure, mm -hmm. whether we're looking at fraud, mm -hmm. whether we're looking at disease onset, based upon, you know, we'll look at sometimes hundreds and hundreds of signals and we'll map these data in maybe 2,000 dimensional space <laughs> and build these machine learning classifiers where we can then apply them, okay, in real time, okay, into future streams of data, and by looking at all the analytics, we can predict events with, you know, about 90% precision, whether it's Pretty disease good. onset, device failure, whatever it might be. Yeah, you can make, help businesses make decisions that are that much smarter based on all this information. Yeah, predictive analytics is a brand new field, and it changes everything. And so it basically, this looks to us like an entire replacement stack for everything that's going on in enterprise application software, very much enabled by the you know the you know elastic cloud, and I think that's being primarily driven by AWS. Why are you going to be better at it than all these other companies of various sizes that are talking about cloud and predictive analytics? Oracle being one, Adobe, Salesforce, you know, which I guess is trying to be Siebel 2.0. I mean, why you? Once you get beyond all the white papers, okay, which so everybody's got a white paper and everybody's in the IoT space and everybody's <laughs> in the predictive analytics space. You know, the companies that are really kind of vying in this market are GE, okay, and IBM. So those are the 800 pound gorillas who are making all the noise. GE, I think, has spent $3 billion. They have 3,000 employees trying to build this software stack. To my knowledge, they have zero production IoT applications in deployment on the planet Earth today after five years of work. Mm. Um, IBM has this fiction that is called Watson, Watson yeah. and it is a fiction. Um, and I think it's- They spend a lot of marketing dollars on it. It's great, I hope they spend more, okay? Because they're creating, <laughs> I hope maybe between, between GE and IBM, I just hope they double their marketing budgets. So that big sucking sound you hear outside our windows is created by them. Um, they, um, with, with Watson, to my knowledge, there are zero 
production, industrial scale IoT applications deployed on the world today. We have 23. Okay, so we did this a little different. We didn't throw 3,000 programmers at it. We threw, you can't do anything with 3,000 programmers. Let's think about information technology business. Think about the great companies in the world, okay? Mm -hmm. Think about the first Microsoft product. How many people built that? Two. The first Apple product, how many people built that? Four. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Intel, the first Intel processor, you're looking at like 10. Okay. What's the old Silicon Valley uh, saying? Nine people, uh, pregnant people can't have a baby in uh, one month? Uh, Adding more people to it doesn't necessarily make it Amazon possible. Web Services, 12 people. Nothing you know of that was great was built with 3,000 people. You can't do anything with 3,000 people, with 3,000 software engineers, uh, except maintain a large lumbering piece of code like you know, SAP R3 or HANA or something like this. That you can, that you can do with thousands of people. Um, but um, we got together a group of relatively small, bright, highly experienced software engineers, many of whom I've worked with for decades in multiple companies, and we just sat down and grounded out. So we were, we were on the order of, say, 50 to 80 engineers. And we spent eight years and a relatively small amount of money, say about a quarter of a billion dollars, and mm-hmm. uh, ground out a stack that is a full stack platform as a service that enables organizations, aerospace companies, financial services companies, healthcare companies, to design, develop, provision, deploy, big data, predictive analytics, and IoT applications. Why do it? You're already a billionaire. And maybe it goes to the same question is, why do you go back to doing extreme sports after an elephant trampled you? Why? A, a lot of people, obviously not people named Tom Siebel, would say, you know what? I'm good. Well, I guess I could have said that after Oracle because I was pretty good then. Sure. Uh, and so Siebel wasn't, for me, wasn't about making money. It was about doing something exciting. It was about making a market. It was about working with talented people. It was about doing something new and something important. I'm confident what we did at Oracle was important. I'm confident what we did at Siebel Systems was important. I think what we're doing now, I mean, uh, I believe that I mean, I know this sounds a bit absurd, but it doesn't sound, it's no more absurd than when we at Oracle said we were going to become the largest database company in the world, which we did. Okay, or at Siebel Systems when we said we were going to become the largest producer of CRM systems in the world, which we did. So the game that we're playing is to become the world's largest provider of platforms for organizations to design, develop, deploy, provision, and operate big data, predictive analytics, and IT applications. As I sit here today in the spring of 2017, I believe we're gonna pull that off. Uh, Today I have 23 large-scale industrial production applications in deployment around the world, which is 23 more than anybody else that I'm aware of. (laughs) Uh, If in a year we have 50, I think the game will be over. The worst case is we build a successful company. The best case is we build something fundamentally game-changing and important. Why are we doing this? Because this is our idea of a good time. Okay? <laughs> so I, I get to work with bright people on an important project. Um, it, it's very meaningful. Every problem that we're solving has never been solved before. These are very, very difficult, very challenging engineering problems. And this is my idea of fun. So it's clearly... There's nothing in this that will change my life. It will certainly change the lives of some of the people who we work with. Mm. Um, but um, you know, when it's done, I'm the same wife, the same house, you know, same car. Nothing will change for me. This is, <laughs> this is this is this is my idea of fun, and this is why we do it.
Okay, business is one thing. Tom Siebel is good at it. But beyond that, what does he care about? His family foundation has contributed more than a quarter billion dollars to a number of causes, including the Salvation Army, a scholarship for engineering students, and more. But one particular project caught my eye. The meth project was a very interesting project. We started it in 2005, first in Montana, and then Idaho, Wyoming, Georgia, Illinois, Arizona, Hawaii. And it was a very large-scale effort okay, in prevention as it relates to methamphetamine use amongst young people. And it was, it was very controversial, it was very edgy. We did not deal with methamphetamine as a drug, we didn't deal with it as an illicit sub substance, and we didn't deal with, with authority figures. We dealt it with just a consumer product. Huh. And if you're, if you're 15 or 16 years old, it's just a consumer product. Now it happens to be a consumer product with, with a lot of uh, almost unbelievably deleterious attributes. Right. And so we mounted a very large-scale national campaign. I think our budget at one point was as much as $40 million a year that used very you know, leading-edge communications technologies on the web, television, broadcast, print, display media to communicate to 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old people what the what the what the attributes were of this product, so that they were offered the product, which usually happens after midnight. There'd been alcohol involved, that they would know what they're getting into. Right. And the idea was to have a more well-informed consumer, in the hope that a more better-informed consumer would make uh, uh, better decisions. And it turns out that was true. How'd you become aware of the problem? Uh, I spent a lot of time in Montana. And in Montana, you get in a 2003, 2004, 2005 time frame, um, you know, methamphetamine was just an epidemic. It was just tearing families apart, tearing communities apart. And, you know, a lot of, you know, primarily rural white America, with the exception of Hawaii, where we also had the meth project, which is not, there was not a primarily a rural white problem. It was mm -hmm. primarily a, a rural kind of native Hawaiian problem. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was just epidemic proportions, destroying lives, destroying families. And, you know, this is the, the fastest acting addictive agent known to man. It's, and it's just horrible. But it was, that was a very rewarding project. We reduced methamphetamine use in the state of Montana by, I think, 70%. We reduced methamphetamine use in Arizona by 50%. And it was, it was um, you know, received a number of awards as the most efficacious drug prevention program in the United States. What could the country, I mean, this has become a more front burner issue again since the presidential campaign. What can America, the Trump administration, as it's looking to tackle more of this problem, learn from that? I think as, it gets, as we deal with drugs, we need to look at this as a public health problem, not as a, as a, as a crime problem. And, you know, we've turned it, it began in the 70s, first with Rockefeller in New York, and then with the Nixon administration, with the war on drugs, which has just been this incredible travesty. I mean, in 1970, there were about 200,000 people in the U.S. prison system. Today, I believe there are 2.5 million people in the U.S. prison system, and most of this is due to the war on drugs. I mean, this is just insane. I mean, we have people who, you know, who got caught carrying an ounce of marijuana who are in prison for life because that was their, because it happened in California and it was a three strikes, you're out situation. Yeah. I mean, this is, 
you know, think about this. In, in 50 years, you've got 200,000 in the U.S. prison system and 2.3 million. We have the largest rate of incarceration okay, in the free world. Okay, okay, if you are a black male, okay, there's like a 33% chance that you're going to spend time in prison. I mean, this is insane. Uh, okay, and, and we've, we, you know, it used to be that we, you know, we, we imprisoned people, you know, that, you know, that we were, were scared of, and now we're imprisoned people that we're just for some reason mad at. And it's, it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. In places like California, they spend more money, and John, you've been there, they spend more on the prison system than they do on the education system. I pushed back on Tom a little, pointing out that unlike a lot of Silicon Valley types, he's given money to Republican candidates. He says he's given a lot to independents and Democrats, too, and points out that he's a registered independent. Siebel sounds like one when it comes to immigration. Silicon Valley's on fire. And so, it, uh, you know, the good news is Silicon Valley is rocking. Uh, people are, you know, they are alive, they're excited, they're energized. I think that... You know, the only thing that might hamper it is access to human capital, and this gets to this gets to immigration policy, okay. which is problematic. I mean, so we need to, you know, we need to staple green cards. You know, here we're educating all these people from China, from Iraq, from Iran, from Japan, from from Europe, into engineers and computer scientists and business people, and and that and then we make them leave the country. We sh candidly, we should be stapling green cards to their diplomas. And how we can export all that human capital and uh, and not you know not allow those people to work for us is a little baffling to me. So you feel we need to turn that around, and the the rhetoric around uh, immigration probably doesn't help. The rhetoric around immigration doesn't help. I mean, we're highly to grow these businesses in 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 the information technology business. I mean, we need access to the best and the brightest. And we are training the best and the brightest uh, at, you know, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Illinois, Berkeley, Michigan, you name it. Oh, and we're okay, and we're spending you know, taxpayers' money to do it, and then not allowing them to work here. It's kind of crazy. How does he do it, though? Whether it's seeing that it would be a good idea to join Oracle early or to start Siebel Systems when Larry Ellison didn't think it was interesting, or to approach the problem of meth addiction in a fresh way, how does Siebel see around corners? I've been very fortunate in my professional career to be in the right place at the right time three times, okay, in the relational database market, in the CRM market, uh, 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 customer resource management market, and now in this big data predictive analytics IoT market where I was able to start these companies about three or four years before the tsunami came. And all of a sudden, then we just kind of ride this big wave the rest of the way. I'm a student of history. I read history of technology a lot. Um, and uh, I read a lot. And I think you know, whether it's sociologists like Daniel Bell, uh, whether it's you know the innovators by Walter Isaacson, um, or whether it's reading about big data, IoT. Uh, there's a book out called The Master Algorithm by um, uh, uh, Pedro Domingo, and it's um, uh, you know I read a lot, and so to the extent that I've been able to see these trends coming, it comes you know primarily through reading. Great. 
Well, I hope we get to talk a lot more about this as the company develops and the market develops. Tom, I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It was a great pleasure to be here with you today. My thanks to Tom Siebel. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you in the comment section. Next on the podcast, Steve Ballmer is best known for being the muscle at Microsoft, a sales leader who helped grow the company into the greatest force of the PC era. Thanks to the dot-com bust and the rise of longtime rival Apple, though, Ballmer is also misunderstood, particularly during his time as CEO of Microsoft. I caught up to him recently to talk about his life after Microsoft, his ownership of the LA Clippers, and his new project demystifying where our tax dollars go. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear 